This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. It's official. The hydrogen economy is here. The global transition to clean energy is gathering momentum, and it's clear that hydrogen will play a critical role. Biotech offers modular, scalable, and rapidly deployable hydrogen production systems through sales, rentals, leases, and gas as a service to customers worldwide. If you're interested to learn more, visit biotech.us to find out how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low, or zero-carbon hydrogen today. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Senior Associate at the Breakthrough Technologies Group at the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who is calling in from London. On today's episode of Everything About Hydrogen, we have a special treat for our listeners. This is our 40th episode of the EAH podcast, and we figured it is time to celebrate by speaking with one of the visionary leaders in the hydrogen space. Today, the EAH team is excited to sit down with Marco Alvara, CEO of SNAM. SNAM is one of the largest gas infrastructure companies in the world, and Marco is well-known in energy circles as a leading thinker and a voice of the hydrogen revolution. In fact, Marco's second book on the future of hydrogen is scheduled for publication in August of this year. We cannot wait to get our hands on a copy of the book. And for our listeners who are as eager as we are to read it, the title of Marco's forthcoming book is The Hydrogen Revolution, A Blueprint for the Future of Clean Energy. It's from Hodor Studio Publishing and is scheduled for release on August 26th, but can be pre-ordered online. We are very pleased that Marco made the time to sit down with the EAH team to talk all things hydrogen and how it is changing the future of energy. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at at about hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys, this is uh, one of those episodes where we've got a, a hydrogen luminary coming on. Well, okay, I keep doing this. Let's start with this. Patrick, how are you doing? Your background looks like you're in outer space, which uh, presumably is a relocation, so we can talk about moving again. But generally right. speaking, how are you doing? That's a sharp U-turn for you, Andrew. <laughs> Mid- I'm telling you that. <laughs> this is, you know, it's one of those mornings. It's disjointed, <laughs> disjointed thought process. I think, I think you're, I think you're suffering from heat stroke. Maybe the DC summer is upon us, and that's more likely. We could do with some of that heat in London, I tell you. It's blooming freezing over here, so I don't know what the hell's going on. Patrick, have you taken some kind of hydrogen fuel cell-based system into space? You know, is that why you're, you know, you've got that kind of gravity-type backdrop? Actually, I think the the, the thing that I, I was looking at the other day was the, um, I'm going to get it wrong, I think it's the Odyssey, the, the, the hydrogen uh, boat or the Inter- vessel, energy right? observer. Yeah, the Energy Observer, there it is. And they, they have a, a live tracker website, which was incredibly cool. And I, I have a funny feeling that, that when I suggest this, you guys are going to be excited. And I hope everybody else who's listening in is. But we should talk to them at some point in the future about what they're doing, how long they've been doing it for, and uh, what was the inspiration for such a, an ambitious uh, kind of effort, because it started quite a few, quite a few years ago. I have no objection to that whatsoever, and if they're listening, it uh, the you know fee for entry is a uh, is a uh, transatlantic uh, trip on the on the Energy Observer. <laughs> but speaking about space, wasn't there? I mean, I, I thought that I saw that there were a couple of announcements in sort of Australia and New Zealand about various new hydrogen initiatives linked to uh, space programs. I think there's been a bit of talk around that in Scotland and actually in Cornwall around some of these spaceports. Uh, now, so I feel like you. you I feel like you. 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 Uh, you know more about it than Patrick and I do. So, <laughs> well, you know, Patrick in the breakthrough technology side. You know, sometimes you're just uh, a little, you know, wondering. I mean, and you guys are stateside, so of all the crazy, weird, and wonderful ideas in the world, you know, we do like to. We do like to go to space. That is true. It's usually a NASA scientist that comes up with it, isn't it? I mean, Hyperion is uh, the fuel cell sports car company. Hyperion are ex NASA. Um, you know, as as was uh, a couple of other companies uh, like um, 
Joy Scientific was, I think, in the NASA Space Center. Uh, one but of their <laughs> one of their great legacies. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, there's quite a bit of uh, you know tie back. I think I was uh, speaking to one of the founders of Element Two, which is a hydrogen refueling station provider in the UK today, and uh, he's ex EASA. So there's always uh, there's always seems to be a lot of space links around the hydrogen industry. That well, uh, I think we've privatized NASA, and uh, uh, Elon Musk is now CEO, president, and chairman of the board of, of NASA. So you know that's uh, that's <laughs> that's where that's the direction we're going with that one. Has anyone asked the obvious question, which is, do Elon's presumably Elon's market uh, rockets actually do use hydrogen, right? So. Yeah, and presumably he does use fuel cells in space. So has anyone had that sort of conversation to see, you know, there'd be a certain irony if uh, through um, SpaceX, Elon Musk is actually one of the largest hydrogen consumers in America at the moment. I, I believe, <laughs> yeah, Patrick may, yeah, maybe Patrick knows better. I believe if we're giving Elon, if we're being fair to Elon Musk because he gets treated so unfairly, I believe he has addressed this issue before and his uh, structure of this argument is that it's not that hydrogen doesn't have its uses. <laughs> it's that he doesn't like their uses. So I think, I think, I think we've got the, the, the joyous point of like poor Elon just wants to build cars, right? So let's let, let him build his cars. And then uh, hopefully when we arrive in Mars, we can feel, feel good about it. That's right. That's right. All right, guys. I can see that uh, Marco and his team are in the uh, Zoom waiting room at the moment. So Patrick, pressure's on. Introduce uh, the CEO of one of the largest global uh, gas infrastructure companies in 15 seconds, 30 seconds. You've got 30 seconds. I think you just covered half of it. Marco, Marco Alvera is uh, the CEO of SNAM, uh, which is the uh, Italian uh, natural gas uh, utility. Uh, as, as you say, Andrew, one of the biggest uh, movers of natural gas on the face of the earth. So uh, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting one because SNAM have taken a really strong kind of uh, leadership role in, in rolling out hydrogen and are participating in lots of different initiatives and projects across the across the globe. But uh, also, they're part of our work around the green hydrogen catapult with a, a large number of leading industrials to drive down the cost of green hydrogen. So there's some interesting conversations between blue and green. The perfect shameless plug to start the interview. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> what else? All right, so uh, Marco, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm sure most of our listeners need no introduction for you, but if you wouldn't mind uh, just starting out by uh, introducing yourself and giving us a little bit of background uh, about your history and your and your role at SNAM. Great. So I'm uh, Marco Alvera. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be with you today. I started my career as an investment banker, then I was an entrepreneur, and then I started working in energy about 20 odd years ago. And I started in NL as head of strategy. NL is the world's largest uh, renewable energy business. I was head of strategy there. And then I moved to ENI, which is one of the world's leading oil and gas companies and really got to know all the secrets and insights, not only in the power sector with ENI, NL, but also the, the upstream sector and downstream and trading and gas networks. And, uh, and then I joined SNAM as CEO in uh, 2016. And SNAM is the world's largest uh, transporter of natural gas outside of Russia, I always say, because you can't beat a Gazprom. But if you look at the world ranking of gas TSOs, it's Gazprom is number one. Then you have SNAM. Then you have TransCanada in number three. You have some U.S. companies. Then you come back to Europe. So we have a, a leading position in Europe. And we are a company that has always prided itself with being the pioneer in the natural gas business because we ventured all the way out to Russia to bring gas home from thousands of miles and kilometers away. Uh, we ventured into Algeria and Libya. We were the first to build underwater pipelines. We came to the UK and to the Netherlands and to Norway to kind of supply Italy with what was in the 70s and then in the 90s, kind of the green uh, energy transition at the time. And hopefully we can live up to our history. We were founded by Enrico Mattei, one of the great leaders and founders in the world of energy. And hopefully we can live up to our past and now be pioneers and, uh, and kind of uh, uh, first movers in, in the final step of the energy transition, which is no longer a transition. But when we talk about hydrogen and the future of SNAM, what I, what I really like and I'm excited about this business is that we can create a kind of forever infrastructure the same way, you know, the port of Athens 
is has been built to over 2000 years ago and is still a main hub and the same way the romans were building roads that were going out of rome into france and they're still being used today uh, once we link a renewable source to a final use uh, through the hydrogen infrastructure that's kind of a permanent uh, type of infrastructure so very excited about what we're doing well, I think that sets us up very nicely to jump right into the heart of the issue, Marco, which is why is a natural gas utility getting involved in hydrogen and, and why now? I, I get this a lot. I get a lot of people saying, well, obviously, SNAM wants to preserve the value of its pipeline. So they're, you're kind of coming up with all ways to kind of uh, green the, the, the work you're doing and make it sustainable. Uh, very few people know that I actually joined SNAM. Uh, because of this. So when I joined, SNAM is controlled by the Italian government. I went to the government at the time saying, this is my vision. We want to spin off Italgas, which is a distribution business, use the proceeds and use some of the financial flexibility to really push on the agenda. Because having lived, uh, and not many people transition from electricity to molecules, having really lived as head of strategy, the complexity and the opportunities, but also the complexity of storing and moving electrons. I always knew that to sort out climate change, we need green molecules. And I always knew that transporting molecules over large distances, especially gas molecules, uh, is uh, you need a pipeline. You really need a pipeline because it's 10 times cheaper than doing it uh, with a ship, uh, especially when it comes to light light molecules like hydrogen. So it's not as if I'm adapting my narrative to SNAM, but I joined SNAM with a very clear purpose of making SNAM a leader in the green molecules. I think green molecules are going to be biomethane and hydrogen. And I think we should be colorblind. We'll talk about probably this later when it comes to which colors of hydrogen. But, but both biomethane and hydrogen move uh, not only very efficiently through pipelines, but they can also move very efficiently through existing pipelines. So there we are with, with a head start. So it's not a, a strategy to serve our purpose, but it's a purpose that really defines our ambition and our strategy here. So, so to, to pick up that, that torch exactly on the, on the colorblind aspect, I suppose. You're going you're gonna to get the color question sooner than you thought, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> straight up. So I suppose, you know, do, do you see distinctive roles in, in this, this kind of transition to, to green molecules for, for green and blue hydrogen? And, and, you know, I suppose more what do those roles look like and how, are, how do you envisage that kind of entire kind of process or transition or, or pathway that you just kind of alluded to? So I live, I live um, in Venice uh, and, and I have a, a country home in Tuscany. And in Tuscany and in Venice, we have power plants that have been uh, stranded several times. So in Tuscany, we have a power plant called Montalto di Castro that was originally running on some types of biomass. Then it went to nuclear. Then we had a referendum, kill nuclear, that went to oil. And then from oil in the, in the 90s, it went to open cycle combined gas. Then when the CCGTs came out, it got stranded. And so this was all in like a 20-year period. You've had several stranded assets in the same site. And you can see that it's kind of very visible there. Um, so when we think about technologies, I really think we need to be future-proof. The worst thing you can do is, is over-invest in a specific technology and then discover the technologies have moved on and you're stranding the assets. This also brings me to another point that the whole concern about lock-in is, is not so true. As I mentioned in this site in Tuscany, uh, it's not as if the fact that it was an oil plant when, when it was no longer convenient to make electricity with oil that kept making electricity with oil. Stranded assets are a fact of life. If we open up any of our uh, home or office um, cupboards, we'll probably find some older iPhones that we've simply stranded, not because they couldn't work anymore, but because we all like to keep the battery fresh and upgrade to the new, newer, newer, or newest version. So um, when, I, when I think about the different colors, I think if you have nuclear, excess nuclear, you may as well make the pink hydrogen off nuclear. Uh, not many places in the world have excess nuclear because if you build a nuclear plant, you're bound to use that for base load and it's probably allocated already. If you have very, very cheap gas, like in Russia, like in Qatar, maybe like in Iran for their domestic uses, uh, then you'll probably be making blue hydrogen and you need to define very strict standards for what blue means and, and how much CO2 you're actually capturing and sequestering and, and storing. And if you have a lot of sun or wind, you're definitely going to be making green uh, sooner sooner than people expect. I really think the cost of green hydrogen is coming down 
real fast coming down uh, faster than anyone expects. I wrote a book on this uh, last year. The book's already out of date uh, just because of how fast the cost of solar is uh, is falling. And the cost of electrolyzers, hey, we haven't even started. That's really an opportunity to shrink it. So I think policymakers should be colorblind, at least to get the market going. Technologies should be uh, allowed to work out and you're going to have um, sunny, windy places with green, hydrogen-rich places with blue. U.S. is somewhere in between. The U.S. has the best sun and the best wind. Uh, but actually, a lot of people think shale is cheaper than gas in Europe and Asia. That's true if you look at the hubs. But if you look at gas just outside of Europe, if you look at Russia, if you look at Libya, Algeria, Egypt, those upstream reserves are a lot cheaper than shale. And so blue hydrogen from Russia will always be able to compete with the blue hydrogen maybe coming out of uh, specific liquefaction plants over there. So uh, that's my view, colorblind, let the, mar- let the markets work. Uh, but what we do need are very strict rules uh, and, and uh, certificates of origin so that we know where that hydrogen comes from. Because with oil, it's easy, right? I can, I can send, an engineer, I can send a, uh, an engineer on a ship and he'll tell me where that oil came from with, with great accuracy. Uh, when I look at H2, you know, it's an ke- identical chemical twin, whether it's gray, black, blue, green, pink, turquoise. So I'll need to really have very strict certificates of origin to know that it's blue and not gray. So, Mark, I, I guess to sort of pick you up on a little bit of this, though, I mean, you know, ultimately underpinning the hydrogen question in some senses has always been why do people actually want hydrogen in the first place? Actually, what is sort of what is driving the demand for hydrogen? You know, if you if you intuitively went to most and asked most end customers, do they want hydrogen to replace the natural gas or the coal they're using or to change the cars? They'd probably, you know, I would, certainly a few years ago would have said, well, what's the benefit of it? Why, you know, why, why would I want to change it? So, you know, you said that you went to the Italian government and convinced them that there was a new strategy and that they should follow through on this. What was it that you saw as the demand side that was going to actually move people towards hydrogen? What was it? And what is it that you're excited about now that gives you that confidence there will be a market for these investments you're making? So the market will be significant. I think there's now a consensus out there, all the uh, economists, all the energy experts, all the investment banks, the consultants, they're all saying hydrogen will play in a decarbonized world a role, let's say between 10, 15, 25%. So there's no question about if it's just a question of how much and by when. Um, what, I'm, what I'm really excited by and why I think it's going to be on the higher end of expectations is let's start with, uh, let's step it back a second. Uh, electricity is fantastic. Electricity is really good. I can't wait to have my first electric car. The problem is I now have only one car. To have an electric car, I'll probably need a smaller kind of city car uh, as a second car. Uh, but as, as I decide that my household needs a second car, for sure it will be an electric one. So I'm a big fan of electrification. And electrification will get us from the current 20% of electricity in the energy mix, primary energy mix. Electricity will kind of become, let's say, 50 or even 60%. So huge effort there, and it has to become all green, and we have to phase out coal and and eventually gas and all of that, and a lot of work to do there. But 40% is incredibly, if not ridiculously expensive to electrify or even impossible to electrify. If I think about a long-range plane, if I think about a ship, if I think about steel making, if I think about cement, glass, where you need a lot of heat, and even if I think about heating up a cold home, it's going to be very expensive, maybe not for... The house owner, he can he can uh, you know decide to invest a lot on batteries, but the, as a system, there's no way we can provide a seasonal um, storage through batteries and through electrons. We're going to need kind of bulk molecules stocked up somehow. So right now, there's no question of uh, you know whether we need hydrogen. I think we've moved on beyond that in the last couple of years. The question is whether it's going to be 15% or 25, 30% of the energy mix. The sectors I'm most excited about. Our uh, trains are going to be the first to kick in just because it's already in the money to, to convert a train from diesel to hydrogen. Uh, I think steel is going to be another huge, huge sector driven by Germany. Germany needs to get out of coal, get out of nuclear, get out of diesel. Uh, there's no other way you can make steel than to use either natural gas or hydrogen, hydrogen really replacing natural gas uh, later down the road. Uh, but but the great news, the reason all this is going to happen, and the reason all this is going to create jobs and businesses, as 
uh, Joe Biden said in his in his uh, global leader summit on climate uh, last week is that the cost is falling so rapidly that we will soon have green hydrogen cost competitive with fossil fuels. And by soon, I mean five years and, and maybe even sooner. And as I said, every time I make my own estimate, I, I get proven wrong on being too conservative, not too optimistic. And really what it boils down to is a cost. I, I, I prefer solar just because Italy is a sunny country and we're very close to North Africa, which is even sunnier. Uh, the cost of solar in Saudi Arabia is now 10 euros per megawatt hour or one cent per kilowatt hour. And this is a fact. Now, people say maybe there's some hidden uh, subsidies in there. If you look at Portugal or Abu Dhabi, you're talking about 12, 14, let's say 10. And it's 10 in 2021, in, in, in March 2021. So I don't know where it's going to be in five years, but it's not going to go up. It's only going to go down. Now, the cost of Hinkley Point in the UK is 100. The cost of making electricity with coal or gas in Europe, in Germany, in Italy, in the UK, it's around 50, 60. So if I, can make, if I can make solar at 10, and if I can turn it into hydrogen, let's say it gets 30 or 40, the cost of moving hydrogen for 1,000 kilometers is only around 10, 15 uh, euros per megawatt hour with a pipe. So the economics are such that it's already kind of, it's getting to a point where we're already in the money on many applications. And because the infrastructure is already there, I think we will only be surprised at how quickly uh, demand picks up, helped by subsidies, helped by some form of uh, what we call them uh, policy nudges to kind of get those uh, tipping points activated. Uh, but then it becomes a self-fulfilling journey. I have to ask a quick follow-up, which is I know Andrew and Patrick are sort of smiling because they know I tend to do this. But um... I was actually going to ask one myself. (laughs) Right. Well, we can pile in then. Um, So, Marco, you know, I think the one thing that I'd really love your perspective on, because I think you've touched on a theme that a lot of people are commenting on, which is how rapidly the market is evolving, is in some ways is the fact that price falling is falling or predicted to fall so quickly actually in itself a barrier to those initial deployments? Because how do you get initial customers comfortable with giving you that, you know, uh, that duration of offtake and that certainty to make that initial infrastructure investment when everyone is looking at the price today and saying, the market's moving so fast, why don't I just wait another three years? How do you overcome that first mover disadvantage? As a uh, as the CEO of a green hydrogen development company, Chris, you're just asking for a friend, right? <laughs> just asking for a friend. Look, I think that's really what I mean by policy nudges. I think the governments need to step in to cover that that kind of delta uh, until the electrolyzer market really gets going. I think in solar, we're reaching a plateau. I mean, maybe from 10, 10 per megawatt hour, let's say one cent, you know, maybe you can go down another 10, another 20, another 30%, but it's not going to, it's not going to fall at anywhere near the rate it's it's fallen already uh, but i think on electrolyzers we see huge opportunity to 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 scale that so um, the hope is that you don't need the kind of 25 year offtakes that you needed for natural gas where we were really pioneers we were going and building kind of brand new infrastructure we were going as i mentioned 4000 kilometers away in russia to build pipelines over a huge distance we can use a lot of this existing infrastructure for that. Uh, so the kind of getting into the money uh, question is a lot easier. Converting, and we've been the first, for instance, to blend uh, natural gas and hydrogen. We've proven that you can blend up to 10% without changing anything in the end user application. So if you can use blending as a means of creating an immediate demand, you don't need to change anything. Let's just say a 2% blend, a 5% blend, a 7% blend, no need to change anything. You've created a huge demand for green hydrogen, that will get the supply side going. And then as that supply costs lower, then you can have other sectors kind of jump on board. But the trick is to avoid the mistake we did with solar and wind, which have been a huge success in terms of getting the cost down, but at a great, great cost to consumers. We've put on the UK, Italy, Spain, and German um, consumers, more or less these countries did the bulk of the, of the effort. We put almost a thousand a billion euros, almost one trillion euros of subsidies. If you if you uh, if you look at what we've spent already, what we're going to spend until they phase out, and what happened is we used that trillion of euros uh, to fund 
uh, a lot of land development for solar and certainly in Italy and Spain and uh, some, some wind projects and a lot of manufacturing in China. And it was not the land build in, in Italy, but it was the factories in China that brought the cost from 500 all the way down to 10 today, factor of 50. Now, if you look at how much the Chinese entrepreneurs invested to get those factories up and running, you're probably looking at 10 to 15 billion. So we had 1,000 billion of subsidy to fund 15 billion of manufacturing to bring the cost down. Now, there was also fierce competition, oversupply. The Chinese market went long and then short, or, or short and then long capacity, but long and short subsidies. So the, I'm not saying you can kind of overplan, but I'm a big fan of, of, of helping the supply side build up these factories, scale them up, get the cost down, and then you've lowered it, uh, starting with the end in mind uh, for the rest of the system. But Chris, I'm not, I'm not too worried because hopefully there's, there's so much uh, going on with the with the recovery funds, with the green deals, the desire, the, you know, the cost, the system cost of getting hydrogen in the system is a lot lower than uh, stuff we've already done and other alternatives to this. So I think building off that, Marco, uh, you know, SNAM made a, a relatively uh, high profile direct investment into uh, ITM power recently. And we're wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the strategy behind that, the reason for that investment and you know, how you guys approached that investment. We love ITM Power. We think they're a terrific company. It's a public company, so we can't say uh, too much, but uh, we hope to uh, help ITM uh, grow even more and uh, uh, learn more about their technology. And I think there's role for uh, PEM and there's role for alkaline electrolyzers. They kind of serve two different markets. I think the jury is still out, like on batteries, as to what the end solution uh, will be. And as I mentioned, it could be a combination of the two for different applications. But what a terrific company. What a great success story. What, what I really like about them is some, some people improvise these things, but they have a track record as a team. They've really worked together for a long period of time and have done amazing things. We've also invested uh, a lot more money on, on, in an Italian company called Denora. That, that works on, again, they've been working at this since the 1940s. They were building electrolyzers for the uh, petrochemical industry. Uh, so we'd like to invest in technology to learn it, to, to then be able to deploy it with, with some specific insights. And if I, if I can do a, a quick follow on, sorry, Patrick, I wonder if you could quickly uh, talk about sort of your view on where you see blue hydrogen sources fitting into the transition period, into the transition towards green, you know, even, even maybe addressing something along, you know, use of renewable natural gas and biogas in, in uh, reformers uh, and where that sort of sits in that transition period. Yeah, there's a lot to say. I'll try to go quickly. So the network of the future will be by a network for biomethane, a network for pure hydrogen, whether it's blue or green or pink or turquoise, whatever color you have, and a network for CO2. And by the way, we already have these networks. If you look at parts of the US, we have CO2 pipes, we have hydrogen pipes, and we have gas, natural gas pipes. We also have oil and diesel and products and, and LPG, and we have all sorts of pipes. But the end fully decarbonized system will have biomethane, hydrogen, and CO2. Now, whether it's going to cost more to capture the CO2 from a, a biomethane burning CCGT or, or combined cycle or, or other application, and then, and then store that CO2 somewhere, is going to be a function of local availability of storage and local acceptance of storage of CO2. Um, one thing is to do projects like this in Texas. Another thing is to do them in, 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 in uh, so even, even some other state in the US. You see different rules apply across different states in Europe. And there's a lot of nimbyism and a lot of, an, a, a lot of concern when it comes to CO2 storage. I think it's unjustified, but people are concerned. And CO2 uh, can be um, dangerous if, if it's leaked. Because it's heavy, it, it stays kind of uh, with gravity uh, down on Earth. And if you bump into it, you're going to suffocate. And you're gonna, you, you can't see it. You can't really smell it. You can't, you can't really do much about it. So it's a dangerous product, but we will be transporting and storing it. So the bottom line is blue hydrogen in upstream companies is very, in upstream countries is very cheap. SMRs are very cheap. Storing, capturing CO2 is very cheap and, and proven and tested. Whether uh, Russia will be exporting hydrogen to Germany 
or exporting natural gas and then doing the conversion from natural gas to blue hydrogen in Germany is, I think, going to be purely a function of the availability of, of reservoirs in Germany and the appetite for politicians to support that. A lot of, a lot of the greener people are against blue hydrogen. I, I can sympathize with them. I can see they consider it a little bit greenwashing on behalf of all the oil and gas uh, companies. Uh, but I think if, if, as I suspect, demand will surprise us on uh, the upside, we may as well have that backup uh, immediately deployable technology to kind of step in. I also think a healthy competition between blue and green helps lower the costs of both uh, to the benefit of consumers. Uh, but I really think we're soon getting to a point where a green is going to be cheaper than blue in many, many parts of the world. Patrick, are you going to hate me if I ask to jump in or do you want to go ahead? <laughs> I'll let you go then. Go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Um, no, I mean, Marco, just a, a question on that one. So, in the UK, it, you know, I see a little bit more from the UK than maybe I do on the European side. So it'd be interesting to see if it's different. Um, in the UK with blue hydrogen, there's a lot of talk about sequencing. So they want to, there's potentially five big clusters for blue hydrogen and they want to do two first, see how they go and then build the rest. Now, the, the thing that kind of throws up, which I thought was interesting is timeline, because obviously by the time you've done the feed studies, you've actually got final investment decision and then you've built the assets. You're talking at kind of a, minimum six years, maybe up to eight years from the very start of the project all the way through to the point where it's operational. So if you greenlit something new today, you just about get it built before 2030, you get about 20 years of a blue hydrogen site before you're at 2050 and you have to be net zero. But anything coming after that won't be net zero by the time you hit 2050 because you're still going to have to, even with a 95% capture, you're not 100%. So how do you kind of see that timeline challenge piece and how do you see then almost that transition between blue maybe filling a gap up to 2050 versus not becoming stranded, as you mentioned earlier on in the discussion, and green, as it is becoming cheaper, being able to pick up as blue kind of starts to fade off. Yeah, as I said, I think green's going to surprise people at how quickly it gets cheaper. I don't think we need to do too many pilots. I think we've kind of, we're over the piloting phase. We should just get straight going, like, like we saw for wind and solar. They just had auctions and people bid and people won and costs came down and, and projects were developed. So I think to, to overplan is a mistake. To underplan is another mistake. And I think the planning needs to happen fast. And there's enough prototypes out there to know that SMRs work, that CO2 storage works, that CO2 transport works, that green hydrogen works. Uh, you know, the, the technology is proven and tested. I think we should just cut as much out as possible of the kind of um, uh, proving and piloting and just go go straight at it because we can and we need to. And frankly, every ton of CO2 saved today is worth almost 40 tons of CO2 saved in 40 years time. So let's, let's just get, get cracking. Uh, now, there are things that uh, still need to be uh, tested. Uh, and I think the cost of CCS still has a potential to come down. But if you look at North America, people are using a lot of CO2 to just uh, do EORs and, and enhance oil recovery on, on fields. I think a market people aren't aware of and aren't talking about is the ability to capture CO2 and store it elsewhere. Uh, so you can transport CO2 on a ship easily. And uh, maybe some people will be able even to pay a price to get CO2 and, uh, and use it as a enhancer of gas recovery in maybe North Africa or the Middle East. And Patrick, you're going to get, and Marco, we know you, your time is running short. We're going to give Patrick the last question. So, so Patrick, over to you. Yeah, thank, thanks, Andrew. I think, I think this should be the last one because we've, uh, we've dived down every rabbit hole each question we've gone through. But, but nonetheless, <laughs> I suppose one of, the, one of the, the big questions here, and we, we, we kind of ticked into it a little bit in the, the first question around why SNAM was getting involved, but you know, in the hydrogen space. But, you know, SNAM hasn't just gotten involved in the hydrogen space. It's played a, a pretty significant and leading role in a number of initiatives um, to accelerate the, uh, the the hydrogen economy. And, 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 you know, one that I'm obviously attached to and involved in is green hydrogen catapults. Um, but, you know, membership on the, the Hydrogen Council and, and various other initiatives across Europe and, and, and the world. I suppose, what, what's the purpose of these things? And strategically, where do you, where do you see it, these things adding and how did SNAM come to, to play such a significant role? Well, thanks. So I think hydrogen ultimately will be a, a terrific connector between the energy uh, sector, uh, within the energy sector that's been always characterized by silos and people working in electricity uh, seldom worry about what happens on, on the oil or on the molecule side. And, you know, if you, I still, I just have to have this random in, in my pocket. 
from when I worked in any. It's a conversion uh, table. And if you, if you just look at how complex it is to convert gas from one user, unit of measure to the other, I have uh, cubic meters, cubic feet, cubic meters of LNG, tons of LNG, million BTU, kilowatt hours or barrels of oil equivalent. So just for one commodity gas, I have a table that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times uh, seven, 49 different. different. And then you have the same for oil on the other side. And then you, you have the same for coal. And so there's a huge amount of loss in translation. That's why I gave the numbers before. And if you turn everything to, to kilos, we produce green hydrogen today at $4 a kilo. Oil parity is $2 a kilo. Coal parity is $1 a kilo. So really the chances to get from four to two in five years time, and then from two to one in another five or six or seven years time. And this will make the energy transition the biggest business opportunity apart from saving uh, the world from, from overheating. And when I was in Davos two years ago, sat down with the COP team, COP26 team, COP will be led by um, the UK, of course, in Glasgow, but co-chaired by Italy. And I was talking about all this stuff, and I didn't know we could get to two uh, so quickly. I thought two was a 10-year journey. And, and so the COP team was challenging me, saying, you know, what's a moonshot? How can we turn all this into a COP UN uh, global project. And bear in mind, Italy also has a chairmanship of the G20 th this year as well. Uh, so how can we turn this into a G20, UK chairs a G7, so G7, G20, COP26, a kind of contribution to climate change. And, and we did some studies and some work, and we came up with this notion that we can make hydrogen cost competitive. So at $2 in, in uh, five years time. So when I started, uh, it was a daunting uh, idea as we got confident with the work we're doing with the Rocky Mountain Institute and with the other, they call us the seven sisters that we brought on board. Um, we really, we're now convinced we can do it and we'll be unveiling more details and bringing on board new partners as, as we do work with these world leading companies. And we take inspiration really from what our founders were doing in the, in the 50s, in the 40s, in the 50s, and then in the 70s and 90s when the gas industry started from scratch. We just hope that we can do uh, what they did over a, in, in sequence over a 30-year period, as Chris was saying, uh, kind of planning and one step at a time, how we can compress this and make it happen in the next decade. Because we all know that the 20s are, are the key years uh, to do this. And as I said, really at the opening, um, I joined SNAM because this was my vision and this is my purpose. And SNAM now has a purpose, which is written behind me. It's called Energy to Inspire uh, the World. In Italian, it's Energia per Ispirare il Mondo. This is what our company is about. This is why I joined the company. This is what we're doing really to have an impact and to have a great uh, business as a, as, a, as a consequence as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Marco. Really appreciate it. Fantastic. Thanks, Marco. Lovely to meet you. This episode is brought to you by Biotech On-Site Hydrogen. We all know the transportation sector is facing increased pressure to transition to zero emission solutions. And uh, to borrow a phrase from our dear friend Patrick Malloy, this is the thing. Hydrogen provides a clear pathway to decarbonization. Biotech offers its customers turnkey solutions for hydrogen supply that enable vehicle manufacturers, transit agencies, fleet operators, and logistics organizations worldwide to adapt to climate regulations and produce hydrogen for fuel cell electric vehicles at prices that compete directly with diesel. To learn more about how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low- or zero-carbon hydrogen, visit biotech.us today. I'm going to flip this one around then. So, uh, Andrew, changing the habit of a lifetime, I'm going to ask you, what did you make of the interview? What did you make of uh, what Marco had to say? Any surprises there? There's a lot. So I would point out that we did not ask about half of the questions that we initially uh, sent over to, to SNAM ahead of time. Uh, and, and largely, I think, you know, I speak for myself here, but largely, I think, because uh, Marco touched on so many things and had uh, interesting feedback on so many different aspects of the first few questions that we kind of got down that rabbit hole. But I, I guess the, what is most surprising to me is to hear how enthusiastic uh, the CEO of a natural gas transport company is about the near term, you know, relative near term prospects of green hydrogen being cost competitive as a fuel source, right? And as, a, as an energy storage medium. 
I would have suspected or at least expected, and maybe that's something that I should have done further research on, but I would have expected that he would see a bigger role for blue hydrogen in the transition. I mean, obviously he said we need to be colorblind. We need to be looking at all forms and all sources of hydrogen and as part of the transition to a hydrogen economy. But I, I, I guess I would have expected that there would be a bigger emphasis in their strategy on blue sources. Although I suppose it makes sense if you're looking at it from the, the standpoint of a, a huge global company that has a time horizon that is much longer than I think most people think about their their forward planning in a business standpoint, right? I mean, they're looking at this in decades, not just years, like a lot of people are and like most people are used to. But you know, that's a factor, that's a feature of the energy of the energy sector in general. So I still suppose that was the biggest thing that caught my attention, but I'm sure Patrick can tell me why that's wrong. Do you have to be wrong? No. Well, generally, you, <laughs> you generally tell me that it's, 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 well, yeah, generally I'm wrong. So, so I think, I think there's, an, there's a couple of interesting things that I, I, I took away out of this. You know, obviously that kind of colorblind aspects um, and, and the utilization of the, the kind of the cheapest resources and to accelerate the, the deployment of hydrogen um, but I, I think the, the real piece that was, was really strong here and really interesting was around really getting into the, the definition of what a blue hydrogen molecule is and needs to be. This is the first mention of pink hydrogen, I think, on the show, right? I think it's, it's probably the first since we did our explainer at the beginning, to be honest, or one of them. Well, it's funny as well, because it's another example of people calling nuclear two different colors. Because yellow is the other one. Well, yes. Oh dear. Which kind of makes sense, yes. right? Because yellow is the yellow sort of color the other one. people associate with nuclear because of the... All right. Well, this interruption was definitely worth it. Continue, Patrick. All right, thanks, Andrea. As uh, you were. No, but like getting getting detailed on the uh, on the, the kind of the, the properties and constitution of what a blue molecule ought to be or needs to be in terms of carbon content, but also, you know, as, as you flag, like pink, pink generation, right? There's been a conversation about using nuclear or not using nuclear. And um, I think Marco makes a, a strong case around uh, the scale of the market growing rapidly and, and the prices declining by virtue of, uh, of the rollout. And, you know, the optimism and enthusiasm around green hydrogen is, uh, is, is also kind of nice. And I think, I think he's entirely right. You know, when you can see a, a $10 megawatt hour in Saudi Arabia. And as much as we've come down the learning curve, there are still cost reductions on the, on the renewable energy generation side. And our, you know, uh, I think the other, the other flag that, that, that he, he mentioned was 40% of, of um, the, of energy uh, being molecularly kind of linked and needing to convert that. It's, it's the big area where, you know, our, our energy transition challenge exists now. You know, ev everybody understands the, the kind of the broad principles of electrification and, and the need for more and greater kind of deployment and, and better dynamic deployment of renewables. But, but there's still this, uh, this space that we really are, are trying to solve for and, and hydrogen appears to be a very strong option in it. So, uh, excited, interested, and uh, and and rather rather you know kind of um, enthused to see a, a major natural gas uh, entity CEO advocate so effectively, strongly, and and completely around the, the what the hydrogen economy and transition is going to look like. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, we're not going to let Jackson off the hook on this one. So obviously lots to unpack. Um, a few that were interesting to, so to points about things that are not often discussed on the show. So um, unusually and interestingly for me, the idea of using uh, solar power from Africa to generate hydrogen and then provide that as baseload power against um, coal and gas and then the economics. So just, you know, in my memory, at least from what he was going through, so if North African PV at 10 euros a megawatt hour, you know, if you were, this is probably marginal cost analysis kind of back of the envelope, but, you know, 50% electrical conversion plus compression, put, um, you know, so you're at 20 euros a megawatt hour, put that into a pipeline. He's saying 15 euros a megawatt hour for transport means you're landing at 35 euros a megawatt hour as a fuel for green hydrogen on a marginal cost basis. And that sits against 40 to 50 euros a megawatt hour on a fuel basis for coal or gas. And then you add a carbon tax. 
So that's, you know, that was quite interesting just to see him go through that process. Um, you know, I, I think certainly in the UK, um, we've only really just started to see people go further down that rabbit hole of, you know, does hydrogen from a power supply perspective make sense for that kind of final five to 10% peaking capability on the grid? Uh, you know, and, and um, RWE have kind of led on that it, on um, a recent project they announced in the UK. But, you know, people have been talking about this um, in, in Europe for a little while, obviously in North America for a little while. There's, you know, the Japanese and um, the South Korean government have been actually much more on the forefront of this, but admittedly more on a ammonia story, really, rather than a pure hydrogen story. So I thought that was that was a really important point because it was just different. Um I think I wasn't quite sold, you know, and I'm going to be, you know, as honest as I am, I'm not still quite sold around this time gap piece. I do think that's something we um, spend a lot of time, you know, at least on the protein side, trying to understand. I think actually, to be honest, a lot of people in the industry spend quite a lot of time saying, how do you remove that first mover disadvantage without overburdening um, governments, especially governments that are recovering from quite significant economic um, debt pressures as a result of COVID? You know, how do you equitably split that delta? You know, because it's one thing to ask the steel sector, which is very, very focused on cost to take an additional premium. But there are plenty of sectors where actually energy is a relatively small part of cost. And I'm not still sure in my head whether it's appropriate and fair that the taxpayer should be picking up the delta to encourage people to go first and remove that first person's advantage, or whether actually private sector companies should be stepping up to the table pushed by institutional investors who want to see these sectors work, who invest across a portfolio and who have a broader ESG mandate to say, actually, we're going to push our supply chains to, you know, and our portfolio companies to actually pay a premium on energy. And even if that is a 30, 40, 50, 100% premium, but it's only 5% of the total product cost to do that. I, I feel like that's actually an area I would have liked to maybe push him on a little harder, um, you know, and then I think, you know, otherwise I thought a lot of the points that he raised were really interesting, you know, rail, unusually the first one to flag straight off the mark too. That was a first as well. There are a lot of firsts in this episode. Yeah, but it's, it's the nice thing of getting a different perspective straight off the mark, you know, and, you know, the observation that rail is competitive with diesel certainly is not um, the same discussion in certain other markets. Now, I, again, I think that's because people are often quite short-sighted in this. They tend to look at what's the price in the next five years and they go, oh, it's not competitive in the next five years instead of going, well, but you don't buy, you know, you don't actually buy something for five years if you're buying a capital asset in reality. You, maybe you're used to getting a payback in five years, but actually it's a 20, 30 year asset. And, and it was fascinating. We were speaking to a couple of people in the UK recently talking about um, uh, kind of a new hidden stranded asset class, which is Euro 5 commercial vehicles in Europe. So buses and coaches and um, and lorries and things where these are, you know, actually meant to be 10 to 20 year assets, but they're Euro 5 and actually, you know, they're supposed to be banned or they're going to be almost banned and will require upgrades within the next five years. And so, you know, I think that that time interface sits behind almost every conversation we have and came out of this in a very profound way, which is everyone needs to do this. It's very clear this is also going to be far more cost competitive in the future. So we all know we need to do it. We all know it's going to be cheaper. It's just a case of how do you get away from where we are today and where we might be in 2025 and 2030 and who should be picking up the bill for the delta between now and that cost inflection point. And I think that's a theme that came out from the podcast and I would have liked to push him and to be honest, maybe even future guests a little more on it because I'm still not sure that there is a right answer that collectively we've landed on yet. I think I think and 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 it's a very it's a very good point and it's a very it, you know it, it is one that we you know inherently when we talk about an electrolyzer cost dropping from you know circa eight hundred nine hundred dollars a kilowatt to two hundred dollars a kilowatt you know the the performance of that electrolyzer you know may improve marginally but the capex rollout is different now where this gets kind of dynamic and a little bit fun I suppose is different asset types. The burden is different, right? You know, a pipeline infrastructure kind of uh, conversion has a has a different life of asset, and and actually opens up a whole heap of other sectors and use cases that can be additional. So when you know, I think about a system, you know, a network rather than a system. Let's say for a moment, obviously, a network is a system, but like a network of use cases. So you build a pipeline from, you know, a hydrogen production source to a steel facility. 
And then you add on additional capacity or you build a pipeline with additional capacity or, you know, you increase the pressure maybe over time, you know, if you design for that additional capacity, you know, maybe on the way you're fueling now your, your, um, your truck filling stop, right? You, you effectively have a, a kind of a, a multiple kind of stage use case. And this is what we get to when we think about industrial clustering where that you have multiple use cases of different types, different sizes, different shapes of use, right? And the use profile does start to matter in these cases. You can then spread the burden more reasonably across a lot of use points and also get the scales and uh, that require a cost declines. And also subsidy can be quite effective in those environments because it's quite directed and concentrated and it's not a bespoke one-off project. So there's dynamics in the design of deployment that start to, to matter quite heavily here. Um, yeah, sure. There, there's a premium for moving first, but there's also an advantage to it, um, or there at least can be in certain sectors an advantage to it. Um, so, you know, uh, it's an interesting and challenging question for sure. But I, I think, you know, depending on where you sit and depending on what the, the kind of the positional use case is, those risks are either quite large to perhaps prohibitive in the, in the beginning to actually a strategic uh, investment that you can manage uh, with some level of understanding of, you know, kind of how this uh, informs your future strategy or how this gets, uh, allows you to deploy more effectively in the future or how to utilize an asset slightly differently. So there's dynamics here that um, could be quite, quite interesting, quite fun and quite different from, I think, uh, how we viewed these things in the past. There we go. All the more reason to push on the question, Chris. Maybe for another time. Since we didn't ask the majority of the questions, maybe... <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can find a way to uh, maybe just ma email him over to uh, to Marco and have him write a, a long form uh, answer to all of our remaining questions. I'm sure he's got. Maybe we just have to get him on again. All right, guys. Yeah, I think uh, I think we have run over or at least I've run over. So I don't know if you guys are going to stick around, but we'll see you next time. See you next time, Andrew. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to Marco Alvarez, CEO of SNAM, for joining us on the show today. It was a truly excellent discussion, and we cannot wait to hear more from Marco and SNAM in the future. And for those who cannot wait for Marco to come back on Everything About Hydrogen, his latest book, The Hydrogen Revolution, A Blueprint for the Future of Clean Energy, will be published by Hoder Studio on August 26th, but it can be pre-ordered online, so don't forget to order your copy ASAP. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. 